0: The fact that people are thinking outside the box and going, okay, if we can create meat out of plants and then we can create meat out of stem cells in a lab, why can't we take a 3D printer, put cellulose into each of the cartridges and print out what we want our meat to look like?
1: Hey, welcome everyone. I'm JJ. And I'm Austin, and welcome to 2021. And as you know by now, this is the Going VC podcast, and we're your hosts. We are really excited again to bring to you today our conversation with Jonathan Hua. As you know, our goal of this podcast is to pull back the curtain a bit on folks' career in VCs, talk about specific sectors, and really things that are at the core of our mission at Going VC. So JJ, why don't you give our audience a little bit of a breakdown of what they're in for today? Sounds good, Austin. We're really looking forward to this episode today, and we think you guys will totally love it. We talked about Jonathan's career story, his pathway, and adventure into VC. And then we really dove into ag tech and the future of food. Yeah, I think what's really neat too about this episode is kind of the first time that we've really gone deeper into a specific vertical. I'll admit, this is something I didn't know a lot about coming into this episode. And I walked away learning a lot more, getting really excited about what I think a lot of people might view as kind of a boring sector, food and agriculture, but man, it's really anything but. So I think our audience is really going to be in for a treat. I couldn't agree more. This is definitely one you won't want to miss. And before we dive in, as a reminder, new episodes will premiere every second Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern. And without further ado, here's our conversation. Enjoy. Jonathan, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for being here. First, curious how you've been holding up in the pandemic and and lockdown. How's it been the last six months or so?
0: Yeah, I've been working from home for the better part of nine months now. The one complaint I really don't have is not having to commute my gosh i didn't realize how much the commute was eating into my energy levels until i didn't have to do it anymore how nice is it to be able to say i've got a meeting at 9 a.m cool i guess i can roll out of bed at 8:45, splash some water on my face sit in front of a camera and just look pretty and no one would suspect anything that's been awesome pandemic's been very interesting it's forced us to you know really reevaluate a lot of how we do things our thesis definitely has shifted and changed but also how we work We had a big fancy office on market street in San Francisco. Has anyone used it in the past nine months? Not really. We have a relatively distributed team. We have a team based in Tokyo as well. And now we're thinking even post pandemic, what's going to happen? Are we going to be working from home. Most of the time, are we going to move to a more hybrid situation? Are we going to have some satellite offices, some WeWorks or other co-working spaces we're not sure yet. These are ongoing conversations.
1: Yeah. I don't know about you too, but for me, I can't imagine going back to the way we Did meetings, get everyone in one location, in a room. Video is nice. Exactly. The trend that you may have noticed is there are some high
0: profile people taking their companies out of the Bay Area. You're seeing a lot of companies also make declarations, Twitter, Square, Facebook, saying that we're committed to remote work, possibly even indefinitely for some of these companies. And some of these companies can't do that. Google and Apple and companies that have a lot of proprietary hardware and and IP. You can't really be working on the next iPhone model in your living room at home. There will be companies or, or teams more specifically that won't ever be able to do the work from home thing on a permanent basis. But I think like Palantir moved to Texas, Elon Musk just moved to Texas. They're realizing my team is distributed now. Everyone's working remotely. It seems to be doing fine. The people who need to go into work will stay in the work. But for me, I'm just thinking about my quality of life. I wouldn't call it a mass exodus. Silicon Valley will always be a hotspot, at least for the foreseeable future. The convenience of it, the access the location, and the sheer volume of tech companies that are still
1: based here. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned earlier that you had changed some of your thesis. Can you expand on that a little bit? Has it shifted focus in terms of sectors, or is it more you need to think about everything we're doing now as we incorporate this new trend of working from home and being distributed? Absolutely. At a high level,
0: Scrum... We are industry agnostic generalist investors. Of course, at any given time, our thesis is very much driven by the market drivers and what's happening around us. When COVID came around, we did what most firms did, which was take a breather on new investments and really try to support our existing portfolio. As we slowly came out of that, we started noticing all of our VC friends around us were continuing their yearly cadence on new investment opportunities. And we started seeing a lot more deals popping up in that, that May and June timeframe, which kind of took us a little bit off guard, but we were pleasantly surprised. that People were building some really cool technologies and there were some really awesome things popping up. A- around that time, we decided we wanted to make sure that we were taking full advantage of what we thought the thesis might be for the future. Several members of our team went through and tried building out new thesis areas during COVID-19 and also post-pandemic as well. Before the pandemic hit, we were looking at a lot of things. I think we were still high on mobility technologies. We were still doing uh, a lot of enterprise SaaS. There's a lot of hardware technologies that we were looking at as well. And all of these sectors were things that we almost completely stopped looking at when covid came around and instead we focused our attention on things like food production and healthcare and remote work and we still looked at you know enterprise saas that was something that that was still very pervasive but these days also logistics supply chain and e-commerce have also been a big area for us these days as well we used to look a lot more at sports tech as well now we're doing a lot less of that because you know sports leagues have indefinitely gone a little bit underground and so instead of shifted our uh, attention away from things like sports tech temporarily More to things like smart cities. And there's a lot of IoT technology. There's a lot of smart city technology in Japan that's happening right now. Our firm is very focused on the the cross-border between U.S. and Japan. So yeah, our our thesis has definitely kind of shifted and changed a little bit as a result of the pandemic.
1: Interesting. Can I ask you too, has it shifted how you review due diligence? I get the sense that in the past, there was a big advantage to having a team centrally localized. are synergies for being able to work together. Has that changed at all? Is there actually an advantage now to being distributed? on the diligence side, I think not much
0: has changed in the way we approach things. It's all the same questions, except with a few exceptions. Now we always ask, when COVID came around in March and April, what happened to your company? And how did you guys shift your focus? Or how did you guys pivot? Or how did you guys adapt? Um, And how has that changed your traction or your distribution strategy since? There are some new sectors that we've been looking at as well. The biotech sector and, and deep tech and sustainability that have been a result of some of these changes that have happened in society due to the pandemic and new sectors come with some slightly new methods for diligence. But as far as making our decisions go, once most VCs realize that we could talk to a founder on Zoom and talk to their CTO on Zoom, everything is just the same conversation, just move to a more online format. The face-to-face aspect of the interaction is still very important. If you're Doing a Zoom call with an investor, don't turn your video off when you're talking to them. That's one of the quickest ways for you to destroy your chances of moving forward with us is we value the face-to-face. And if we can't do it in person on Zoom, at least let us talk while looking at each other's faces as if we were sitting in a coffee shop, having the same conversation. But going back to how we evaluate companies again, on the team front, we're asking some more questions that we otherwise wouldn't have asked around like management team references it used to be a lot less around that if we can meet the team in person we can get a a feeling of vibe we had a a certain kind of interaction in person and we can meet the entire co-founding team and kind of base our decision on their background and our interactions with them because we can no longer do that now we're asking a lot of our companies like hey are there other people that you've worked with in the past or friends or even family members who would be willing to hop on a call with us and tell us more about you as a person and about how you do things and your personality and, and how you handle challenges, of various types growing up, or any other facet or aspect of your life that we won't be able to just feel
1: and garner those insights from an anymore. So that's been interesting. So I want to switch gears and, and, and talk about the, I read in your bio and it says you started two companies in college, which is super impressive. Tell me about those and was that used, is that the on-ramp to venture capital for your career?
0: Yeah, my pathway into venture has been a very winding, very unconventional. And I do need to caveat and say that those two companies I started both ended up failing. I think failed startup experience is actually quite underrated. There was definitely a lot to learn from that. But yes, I went to college between 2010 and 2014. I was at Rice University. When I started college, I was a pre-med student. And I thought I was going to be a doctor, thought I was going to go to medical school, thought I was going to go down that kind of prescribed route, so to speak. Pun, definitely not. About <laughs> a semester in, I was sitting in a coffee shop on campus and, and overheard a couple of people talking about starting a company. And for me at the time, I had no idea what entrepreneurship was, had no clue how to start a company or why people would do that. But they were talking about an internship searching platform for underclassmen. And for me, I was a freshman at the time and I was like, huh, I feel like I'd run into the problem of searching for internships as a freshman or sophomore. At the time, the career management center, wasn't, you know, particularly engaged with the underclassmen population. And this was definitely a complaint that I heard from a lot of upperclassmen in my first semester on campus was, it was just so difficult to find internships or to figure out what resources I needed or what classes I should have been taking or what skills I needed in order to excel in an interview. These folks behind me were talking about building a platform for this, where they would get a lot of the upperclassmen on college campuses to write reviews and to be mentors to underclassmen who were in this situation. I was very intrigued and I turned around and I was like, hey guys, I know nothing about startups. I know nothing about entrepreneurship. I am a pre-med student who's never touched business in my life. What you're describing to me makes so much sense to me. How can I get involved? If you need some free labor, let me know. Cause I'd love to learn. And that turned into what ended up being the first startup. It was a company called Wizga. It's no longer around, but it was started by a bunch of, Rice university seniors and me. I was a little baby of the team. And we spent the better part of a year building out this platform and trying to do beta tests at rice and doing beta tests at the university of Texas at Austin. And just going through the process of, you know, building this company, not just the tech platform but everything around marketing and customer success and finding out what users wanted and figuring out how to market this on campus and how to get people to join the beta test and how to get people to stay engaged. These are all things that I was completely unfamiliar with until I jumped into this company. The company didn't make it primarily because the co-founders all got fancy jobs at big companies and decided to chase those instead, which makes total sense to me. Coming out of college, you want some stability. I was left to my own devices with one other co-founder, to try to continue running this and we couldn't build the team up again and continue building the platforms. We let that one die. But that one experience really got me hooked onto the idea of building something useful for other people. I'm not a product person. I don't have an engineering background. I studied history in college. So I dropped out of pre-med after my first semester, decided to pursue this entrepreneurship thing and ended up studying history. Imagine how that conversation went with my parents. (laughs) I just ditched everything that I stood for and everything that they expected me to pursue. But I was like, you know what? I think I either want to be the person building companies or I want to be the person helping other people building companies. And so I took another stab at it. My second company was a mobile 3D virtual fitting room app. I had the idea for you know taking your mobile phone and creating a 3D avatar of yourself and being able to fit clothing items onto that so that you can see what something looks like on your body type and your body shape before you purchase it. I sketched out an entire plan for this, you know, what this would look like, had a whole business model and everything, and even started talking to big box retailers about how interested they'd be in purchasing this if I did actually build this out and got some great feedback. Then started trying to build this with a team of engineers who were sophomores and juniors in college and very quickly realized the level of computer vision needed to pull this off was probably PhD level or just didn't even exist at the time. We spent a year and a half to two years trying to tackle this problem. And we got to the point where we were actually able to model toy dinosaurs at maybe 40, 50% accuracy. The only problem was, first of all, the accuracy was not even close to up to par for an actual consumer app, but also It took forever to render these images out and no one's going to sit here and wait for 30 minutes to an hour. For a 3D image to pop back up on their phone after they scanned themselves. Where the life of us just could not figure out how to get the accuracy up and how to get the time, or the image rendering down. After a while, we all decided to go our separate ways. We ended up raising money for the first company, Wizga, through business plan competitions and did pitch VCs as well. So I did get initial exposure to the other side of the table, which is what ended up piquing my interest into coming into the venture space. But yeah, started off with two companies in college, both failed. A lot of awesome lessons learned at the time. Houston wasn't really well known for being a startup hub, but there weren't very many resources or notable entrepreneurs that I could learn from in that industry. And most of it was in the healthcare space. Anyways, I felt like I needed to take my education and kind of my network to the next level. So I actually went to business school right after college. Another unconventional step ended up going into the MBA program right after college for the sole purpose of learning as much as I could about entrepreneurship and venture capital, hustling my way into my first venture job during my MBA, and also taking on a lot of consulting jobs for startups to start getting into the mindset of helping other entrepreneurs instead of being the person trying to create the businesses myself.
1: That's really interesting. So I I definitely wanna ask you more about that because it seems like you know, an MBA route, and correct me if I'm wrong, isn't really even considered a traditional route to venture capital anyway. Yeah. So- Absolutely. Did you start starting helping startups because you realized that, or this was just coincidental? So this is what I want to do and, and see where, see what happens.
0: Yeah. Having been on the other side of the table, I saw the kinds of questions VCs were asking. I saw the scope that they were working with. And for me, I realized I wanted to be the kind of person who was more of a jack of all trades. I wanted to be able to learn about many different industries. I wanted to be able to help other entrepreneurs. I realized after two built startups, perhaps. I have great ideas, but I may not be the best person at actually executing as far as building a company goes, but I've learned a lot of valuable lessons from my experiences that I think could be helpful to entrepreneurs. And that realization pushed me down this path towards venture. I had a lot of friends in this space and I had interacted with a lot of people during my time as an entrepreneur that made me realize, I think my value add lies more in that industry. You're absolutely right. MBA is absolutely not a traditional pathway into the venture. And I also do not recommend most people to go into the MBA program right after college with no work experience. But for me, the circumstances were a little bit different. I knew exactly what I wanted going into the MBA program. I knew exactly what I was looking for and I knew exactly, you know, where I was going to find everything I was looking for. So the, the two key areas was learning as much about entrepreneurship and business as possible, and also. You know, developing the reputation and network that I needed to really break into the industry because the way I see it, the two most important, the two most important currencies in the venture space are network and
1: reputation. If you don't have one or the other, you're not
0: going to make it in this industry.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. Not to make you feel bad, but just to put the label on you as a failed founder, do you have any empathy? towards founders that are trying to raise capital from scrum or for for, for many venture capitals who are failed founders do you treat them any differently do you put more weight into that given they had maybe some more unique experiences
0: it really depends on the situation the rest of their team makeup as well as what they're trying to build but overall founder empathy is something that i think all venture capitalists really need to have it's and you really don't really get that unless you've been a part of, of a startup team or You've worked at a big company where you've been in charge of projects that ended up not working out, or you you were like me and you started a company that ended up, you know, just falling flat on my face. And so I absolutely have empathy for a lot of founders who go down that path. The entrepreneurial journey is a very complex one, and there are many different factors that go into making you the kind of founder you are today. But yes, absolutely. I encourage all entrepreneurs to go and try and build something. And if it fails, who cares? You tried it, you went for a dream, it didn't work out, but you must have learned something from that experience that will make your next adventure or your next journey in this space, something that might be more viable or might be more long-term or might be more successful. If it doesn't work, you pivot or you shift or you find out why it didn't work and you try again. And you revamp your business model until you find something that makes a lot of sense or that you struck the right nerve or you've you know discovered the right market opportunity or the, the right kind of product. You've built the right kind of team to, to go after a certain industry. These things don't happen on day one. These things happen over
1: time. So yeah, absolutely. Fall on your face, fail, get back up again and try again. Love it. That was a really fantastic answer. Before we move on, and I am really excited to dig into ag tech, another somewhat non-traditional part of your background, I'd say, is you were a history major, right? Now, venture attracts all backgrounds, but that's one I haven't come across that often.
0: Yeah, I think the humanities are severely underrated when it comes to a lot of things. Venture is as much about soft skills as it is about anything else. You mentioned founder empathy but also the personality aspect of being a venture capitalist is so critical. Studying history was a very calculated choice. First of all, I love history. I just enjoyed studying history growing up, specifically political history. More specifically, U.S. presidents and political history. A lot of what I was looking into as a history major on the ways presidents made decisions and a lot of the challenges that a lot of U.S. presidents had to face at the beginning of their administrations and what steps they took to mitigate these situations. For example, President Bill Clinton, he inherited the winding down aspect of the Cold War. And so there's a lot of implications from that entire kind of part of US history that he had to figure out and negotiate and try to get the US out of that and and get the economy back on track. And he had to deal with Castro in, in Cuba, a lot of really interesting events and a lot of things that really threatened democracy and what the United States stood for. Analyzing how he approached these situations what his thought process was, what decisions he made, who he consulted in order to make his decisions, and the aftermath of, of every decision that, that he made. Analyzing that whole end-to-end process something that just fascinated me. Studying that era of history and, and that kind of specific area has been hugely helpful as a venture capitalist for me. Being able to really sympathize with founders and really connect with founders and understand their stories and the challenges, and and their decision-making abilities, and also on the more kind of skill side front, as a history major, I'm writing a lot of papers, doing a lot of critical thinking on these topics that are more open-ended, and also doing a lot of presentations, and as I've discovered in the venture space, there's a lot of of research and due diligence, and, and doing presentations to partners, and trying to convince the investment committee to see your point of view, and to back a company that you've talked to for maybe two, three, four months, sometimes even longer that you've cultivated this relationship with that they are seeing for maybe the second or third time. And maybe they've had a a 15 or 30 minute conversation with the founder one time, but have not spent any time actually cultivating the relationship with the founding team themselves. But me being in the position where I'm the one cultivating these relationships, being able to systematically showcase, all of the positive points and all of the negative points and tell the story and convince the partnership to look at this deal from a certain perspective and how to present it in a way that makes sense for them and makes sense for us. These are skills that I think I learned a lot of as a history major, which is why I encourage anyone who's interested in venture capital to look into the humanities, even if it's not as a major, even as a minor, or take some history classes, take some philosophy classes. Those are always, you know, very useful as well. I I think there's a lot to be learned
1: uh, from those fields. Yeah, safe to say, I think you've developed a decision-making framework that you probably rely on, I would imagine, in almost every aspect of your job. And I can totally see how all that fits into that. That's really interesting. And Perhaps a a good question for disappointing parents, perhaps with the art major, quote unquote, degree. You can just say, now I'm going to be a venture capitalist. So take that. You heard it here first. Yeah, absolutely. Don't knock the history majors. Yeah, definitely. So would finally love to move on to ag tech. And maybe we could start with just a simple question. What got you excited about it in the first place? Yeah,
0: at Scrum, I look a lot more on the food tech side.
1: But yes, my background has very much been
0: in ag tech. Post-MBA, I took on a couple of jobs for kind of landing in the venture space. One of them was running the, uh, the Thrive Ag Accelerator Program here in Silicon Valley. And Thrive is one of the more well-known accelerator programs focused exclusively on kind of farmer-facing agriculture technologies. And my journey into the space is also completely by accident. So I was working in a nonprofit right before Thrive. And one of the roles that I had... at the nonprofit was to build an AgTech conference at the time. So this was like maybe 2017, 2018, AgTech was not something I was familiar with. As with most younger people, I was thinking agriculture, that's not really a sexy industry. Like who wants to be a farmer these days? What I didn't realize is just, you know, how broad the scope of agriculture is to everything in our lives. For me, the first step I took to understanding the agricultural space and what really made me want to commit to supporting the space for the rest of my career in some shape or form, was the first visit I ever made to a watermelon farm. The moment I, I was tasked with creating this conference, I knew I needed to learn about the space, so I drove two to three hours down south of San Jose to the, the middle of nowhere and decided I was going to hit up some farms. The first one I went to, I stepped out of my car and discovered there rotting watermelon crop just littered everywhere in the field. I was surprised. That seemed very wasteful to me. I wasn't exactly sure what was happening. What I ended up learning that day was that there are different types of watermelon crops. The ones that you see in supermarkets, the big green ones with the red fruit on the inside. That's one type of watermelon crop. There's a different kind of watermelon crop that also grows at the same time. That looks more like a cantaloupe. That's smaller. That's white on the outside. And as sometimes it's red, sometimes it's yellow, sometimes it's white fruit on the inside. That's smaller. Less colorful watermelon crop makes up about a half of all the watermelon crop that's grown. What ends up happening is the supermarkets and the wholesalers, they come and they only want the pretty watermelon. They buy up that 50% that's actually presentable in a supermarket to consumers. And the other half, farmers don't know what to do with and I asked them, these school districts certainly could use some donations. You could donate to food banks. They're like, yes, we can. But watermelon also has a very short shelf life. They go bad very quickly and you absolutely will be held liable. If you send schools, watermelon crop that end up being rotten and that children eat and get sick from. And so there's a very finite number of watermelons they can actually donate. And then they have to just throw away the rest. That ended up being about a third of the entire watermelon crop every single season they just have to leave in the fields let them rot hope that they will contribute back you know to the soil again for the next watermelon crop and so for me that was really jarring i had never realized that behind the scenes farmers are dealing with that was a big one to see that one third of all food created for human consumption is wasted and that really struck a chord with me so to speak i grew up in private schools i grew up in a family that encouraged us not to waste food and i realized in my situation that i've been very privileged we have seven and a half billion people on this planet we're gonna have nine and a half to ten billion people on this planet by 2050 and most people on this planet don't have enough to eat on a regular basis so that was when i realized if i was going to dedicate my career to supporting kind of impact and sustainability there was a humongous opportunity in agriculture and food tech to really tackle some of these issues and to really try to be the evangelist among the younger people. You don't hear many people under the age of 30 who are interested in agriculture and food tech, or who even understand the food supply chain and the food production processes and, and all the challenges that we're facing on that end as well. And so I've taken upon myself to be that person, to tell people about the space and to create awareness for the opportunities here. And to encourage entrepreneurs to pursue technologies here and I'll be a mentor and guide to early stage ag tech and food tech entrepreneurs who may not be able to op- obtain the same kind of resources that entrepreneurs in other fields might have. And at Scrum ventures. They hired me away from Thrive because they wanted to start exploring food tech. They wanted to build out a thesis in this space. They wanted to create a kind of corporate innovation program around food tech. Because in Asia, food is a big topic. If you look at China and all of their pork production problems, look at all of the health mandates that a lot of these asian countries are following the whole regulatory scene around alternative proteins is a very big topic in asia these days as well i was brought on to lead a lot of our initiatives um, and thought processes around these topics oh that's
1: so cool how do vcs get the general population interested in these types of areas that the feedback cycle is so long right like people are certainly aware of climate change and all this stuff but the challenge is it's This isn't a problem in my lifetime. So why should I care about it? And you see a lot of big companies, right? Launching corporate venture capital arms to try to tackle these problems. How does venture play a role in getting people acknowledging that these problems are something we need to solve today and educating the world on this more or less? Yeah. If you look at the funding trends in the act tech
0: space. Even as recently as 2010 to 2012, all the way up to 2019, you'll see that funding has gone from, I forget what it was in 2008, something like $2 billion were invested in the AgTech space. But 2018 and 19, that number was like 17 or 18 billion. A lot of the awareness really came in around 2017, when SoftBank made their investment in a vertical farming company called Plenty. AgTech was around before that, but seeing these humongous mega funds who had never delved into agriculture and food before suddenly put in 100 200 300 million dollar checks into these agriculture and food focused companies that really put ag and food on the map the awareness has really come recently and the venture community can play a big role in this a lot of entrepreneurs have realized that there's a lot of opportunities for digitization in this space uh, it could be plant-based meats could be alternative protein, could it be nutrition and wellness, could be food waste, sustainable packaging, and everything in between so this blockchain traceability and supply chain, vertical farming, and so many different opportunities for digitalization in both the agriculture and food tech space, and not only are entrepreneurs building things that are financially viable, but if you're playing a role in, in helping to cut down on climate change or to help to save our environment as a social impact champion, which is what I think a lot of entrepreneurs want to do. Traditionally, social impact and impact investing has been associated with low returns and long sales cycles and just not as financially profitable, but that's very quickly being dispelled by the rate that ag and food tech entrepreneurs are raising money these days.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I know there was, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, an article about how Milton Friedman was wrong. Like, it's not about just pure profits. How those profits are generated really can actually now we measure as an effective return of capital and the cost of capital. Uh, I think it's great. and think the venture community is leading that effort is absolutely the right way to go about it. So it's very exciting to me. Yeah, that's really cool. I feel like to a certain extent, it's almost a cliche where you have people talk about how they're really into, quote unquote, unsexy industries. But then to your point on the fundraising transfer ag tech, until recently not a lot of people put a lot of money into it so i think it's really cool to see someone really engaged uh, in industries like food tech and ad tech which haven't really benefited from a venture as an asset class over the last decade or two
0: yeah jj and awesome think about it what are some things in your life that you have absolutely need in order to survive it's water and it's food and people don't realize that Oh, that's what, that's the basis of everything. In For me, I, I thought
1: the answer was PS5 <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, and Teslas.
0: Critical too. That's critical too. Yeah. Nintendo switches, PS5s. That's right. TikTok is probably the most critical thing in everyone's lives right now. That's probably Undoubtedly. Right now.
1: That's, that's, that's <laughs> Social media really is you know it. That. Exactly. That's why the uh, sale deadline keeps getting pushed back. A guest on a recent episode actually had a really great term that I, I at least had not heard before, that uh, food and water were high frequency purchases.
0: During pandemic, everything else closes, but what stays open? The
1: grocery store right i mean you think of the types of companies that investors get excited about those with secure recurring revenue and what is more secure or higher frequency than food and water purchases so we'd love to dive a little deeper ag tech is obviously a huge space food production is a huge space what areas particularly excite you you know is this cellular agriculture is this sustainability is this improving taste and quality of food is there anything that really excites you going into 2021
0: Yeah, COVID has definitely changed the way I've thought about that question. Anyone who's known me in the uh, context of my agriculture career would probably know that I used to not be as bullish on vertical farming. I thought the capex costs of building controlled environment farms are just too great. The the logistics of it were challenging. Having to place them in more populated urban areas just didn't make sense to me, and that there will probably be a lot of regulatory challenges around building up these huge-scale indoor farms. But that stance has softened significantly since COVID. A lot of consumer preferences over the years have been very heavily veering towards consuming food that's fresher, so to speak, or grow more closer to where you live. And considering a couple of other factors, the shrinking size of arable land, I think it's going to continue to shrink at a very prolific rate over the next you know, decade and two or two decades, combined with a burgeoning population that's going to really strain the proverbial waistline of the food production system. And throw on top of that, volatile climate conditions that make outdoor farming a lot more challenging. I think vertical farming actually offers an intriguing way to grow food in controlled environments. You get to maximize the limited amount of space that we have You get the control, normally tough to control aspects on outdoor farms, such as the amount of light plant crops get, how much water you're using, the temperature, the humidity, and many other factors. And this also allows a farmer to grow crops year-round any kind of crop year-round because everything's controlled indoors i think that will be something that will become more pervasive over the next decade i think a lot more people are becoming you know open to the idea of, of supporting and funding and building kind of large-scale indoor vertical farms closer to the more urban populations indoor vertical farming also requires no pesticides because there's no exposure to outdoor conditions and that makes the crops that you're growing healthier as well also kind of looking long term you you read about virgin you read about spacex go to space and colonize mars and go to the moon and stuff and you're thinking okay how do you grow food in, in an environment like mars that has absolutely a very different kind of climate so this creates a slightly more viable method of trying to figure out food production uh, for, for space in the future as well. So a lot of really cool things about vertical farming. Of course, there are things to watch out for. Considerable capex costs to build these things, cost efficiency in the technology involved, the unit economics for growing these crops themselves. These are all things that vertical farming still has to work out over time. I, I see this as a very interesting model for food production. So vertical farming is one. You mentioned cellular agriculture. I'm going to turn that more into kind of cultivated proteins. The reason why people have been just so obsessed with plant-based and with cell-grown meat products is because of the ethical and environmental benefits that it provides compared to traditional meat sources. If you take the entire population of cows around the world and you put them into one country called the country of cows, that country would effectively be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases behind (laughs) China and the US, the typical culprits. You're, You're thinking, wow, we consume a lot of meat. The cows that this meat comes from, the conditions they're grown in are usually not great. They contribute a lot to climate change. And it's not really a sustainable food source in the future if our population continues to grow. We have so many plants available on this planet to use. The lab technology from the pharmaceutical and cosmetics industry has gotten so advanced that you can effectively grow things out of almost nothing. So why not apply some of these other resources into our food production as well? You look at companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods and the headway they've been able to make in this space. I don't eat fast food that much, but if I show up at a fast food joint, If I see that they have a Beyond Meat or an Impossible Meat burger, that's what I gravitate towards. There's a lot of controversy over whether it's actually healthier or not. Impossible patties are highly processed. There's over two dozen ingredients involved in the creation of it. It's very high sodium. But for me, the idea that maybe I'm consuming something that will contribute less To climate change and global warming, and that will harm animals less, and also are made of primarily kind of plant-based ingredients that could possibly be healthier for me, or could be lower calorie for me. And a lot of these things have not been really proven out yet. But it's just the changing mindset that I had that made me really, you know, intrigued by this. Toughest thing to do in anything food-related, or actually most industries, is changing consumer preferences. If there's a stigma against anything that's happening, it takes forever. To convince consumers to change their habits, change their thought process and change what they've been thinking about over the past several decades. But people have been so receptive to plant-based and cultivated proteins. It's just been incredible to see the plant-based meat space. It's become very saturated. I see this as what like the car industry looked like maybe half a century ago. I wasn't born, but from what my parents told me there are hundreds of car brands. 50 years ago you could choose from. And each car brand had like maybe two or three models. As you were trying to figure out what car you wanted to drive, you just had so many options and they all seemed very similar. And nowadays, you just see which ones have been sustainable over the past 40, 50 years. The big OEMs and automotive companies that still exist today, they figured out how to stay in the industry long-term. And I'm seeing a similar trend here with the plant-based food spaces, where there's hundreds of options, hundreds of products out there. There will only be a handful that will still be around 40 to 50 years from now. But then you also have the entire cultivated protein industry where you are growing entire meat products from stem cells that you scrape off of an animal, which is less harmful to animals. It's completely lab grown, which means no antibiotics and no hormones involved. So healthier product in general. And you can also customize a lot of the nutritional content of what you're growing right now. Cultivated protein is very expensive to develop, and the processes are still quite complicated. You've got stem cells that you have to get from an animal. You have to put them in a nutritional growth media, and then you have to put them through bioreactor processes to grow them uh, into the shape that you want them to and the size, and you have to add texturization to it and taste to it. And at the end of the day, what matters the most to consumers is taste, cost, and nutrition. And so these plant-based and these cultivated protein companies have to optimize for all three in order to be successful in this industry. But it's still very early in the market, but I'm very excited to see what happens on the horizon beyond that. You were starting to see some companies, 3d printing protein products now. And okay, I don't believe that's going to be commercially viable for at least another seven to 10 years. The fact that people are thinking outside the box and going, okay, if we can create meat out of plants and then we can create meat out of stem cells in a lab, why can't we take a 3D printer, put cellulose into each of the cartridges and print out what we want our meat to look like? And we can customize what we put into these cartridges and then print out something that's in a fun shape that's healthier to to eat and i can see myself 10 years from now purchasing a 3d printing food machine and effectively printing a lot of the food that i'm eating
1: i was gonna ask you that are we we still a half a century away from this being normal or are we
0: talking (laughs) years So plant-based is already very much pervasive in the consumer market. Eat all over Whole Foods shelves and all over fast food restaurant menus and even high-end restaurants are adopting a lot of plant-based proteins now as, as well. Cultivated protein, I still think there will be some companies that enter this market commercially with their first hero product probably end of next year to the beginning of 2022, but it won't become a commonly seen consumer product probably until the end of 2022, beginning of 2023. at the earliest and then 3d printed proteins there are two companies in israel that are already doing this but i think as a whole industry 3d printed fruits are probably still about seven to ten years away we want to see how plant-based and cultivated proteins how that market shapes up over the next five years or so before we think about 3d printing foods in the future but yeah that's those are the timelines i'm thinking
1: yeah that's interesting so as a venture capitalist building a a portfolio then you talked a lot about some of these like frontier areas like going to space, building uh, consumable food in in space. Like when you're thinking about this and you're saying, okay, like maybe this technology on the ag tech is two years away. This one is maybe 10 years away. This one might be 50 years away. Do you have to think that way when you're writing checks to say, okay, (laughs) I can't invest all my money in these 50 year away type of (laughs) liquidity events, right? Like how do you piece all that together?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The good thing about Scrum is we are industry agnostic generalist investors. We invest with Across a lot of different sectors and industries. And a lot of the ones with shorter sales cycles and quicker time to IPO or M&A make up a lot of our portfolio as well. Mm. But when it comes to some of these things like biotech and deep tech and space tech and, and agriculture and food, yes, there's a little more consideration that has to go into it. And the first thing is the regulatory timeline. For a lot of ag tech and biotech companies, you have to get FDA approvals, USDA approvals, and sometimes these things take a year or two years, sometimes these things take five years, sometimes these things take almost a decade. And that certainly factors into our decisions. And then you have sales cycles. If you're producing a food product, you know, there's a lot of food safety issues that you have to be you know worried about. There's a lot of perishability concerns. There's a lot of kind of traceability aspects to it. And there's a lot of liability that can be associated with a biotech or a food tech company. And those increase sales cycles significantly because you're mostly selling these products through B2B channels through you know, food manufacturers and food distributors who have very strict oversight and very strict rules they have to, 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 to run by. And oftentimes, if you're a food company trying to sell into even like a Whole Foods, for example, you have to go through so many different teams, so much bureaucracy, and a lot of pilots and tests and trials and a lot of food safety tests and a lot of you know, regulations that you have to overcome. Like these things can take, can really put companies on, on a very long path of commercialization which is challenging and you see this in like hardware and robotics in the agriculture space one space that i had studied quite a bit in my last role um, at the accelerator was uh, strawberry harvesting automation what that typically means is using computer vision and robotics to create a machine that can effectively look at a strawberry and using parameters like size color and feel whether it's ripe or not and then harvesting those by grabbing onto the strawberry and cutting it off using various kind of arms effectively replacing 10 or 15 human laborers who would normally be in the strawberry fields the technology first came out for for this kind of solution at least a decade ago but it's just so complicated because there's a lot of third-party hardware you have to purchase a lot of maintenance involved there's a lot of parts that go into it the computer vision the the hardware the automation the viability of it the adaptability of this technology to things outside of strawberries and whenever you're talking to a big company like a Driscoll's, there are a lot of standards that you have to meet in order for a company like Driscoll's to come in and say, I want to purchase what you're building. And 10 years later, I'm looking at the same space, Strawberry Harvesting Automation. There are maybe eight companies that are now in this industry, and there's only maybe one or two that have a robot that is is actually commercially viable, that works well enough. That has gotten to a place where they have the ability to sign multi million dollar contracts with large fruit wholesalers and fruit manufacturers and fruit distributors. It's been 10 years and there's only been maybe two companies, maybe three, that have made it this far. The rest of them are still languishing in very low technology readiness levels and still working kinks out. And it's been almost a decade. So it's tough. And that's part of the reason why it's been so difficult for ag tech startups to raise money because the barriers to entry have been so high in these industries. You're seeing long sales cycles, long cycles to commercialization, high risk, high liabilities. And as an investor, you're like, maybe I'd rather put my money into a SaaS platform that will exit in five years for like $2 billion. So I completely understand why it's been so challenging. I'm just looking at kind of pandemic trends and seeing that people have to pay more and more attention to food now they have to. Mm
1: -hmm. That makes total sense. I love that you brought up strawberry harvesting. It was actually something Austin and I were just talking about before we jumped on the call about harvesting robotics. And the really interesting part of it was I had a conversation with a friend earlier in the year about just how challenging a problem it is. You make something works for one crop like strawberries, and then you try and apply it to tomatoes and it doesn't work. The robot doesn't get the pressure correctly. That it was really just a lot more of a complex problem than you might have guessed at first blush. Absolutely. I'm glad you
0: guys have thought about that. It's still a problem. Labor is a huge problem in the agriculture industry. You're having a hard time finding people who want to be laborers nowadays. And yet the demand for all types of crops and all types of food products are increasing. And so farms are struggling a lot with this issue harvesting automation is becoming more front of mind for a lot of people in this industry. And how do you speed up the process for commercialization and get them more ready to deploy into fields and how to minimize all the challenges and barriers to entry that they uh, currently are facing?
1: Yeah, no, I think this is a good ending point or uh, at least point to wrap it up. This has been super interesting. Cause I will admit, I do not know a lot about this space if that wasn't obvious from my <laughs> questions. This was a really fascinating conversation. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, the,
0: the whole point of this is encouraging other people to learn and to, to read more into it. And it's, as we discussed earlier, you can't live without food. So might as well spend some time trying to figure out where your food comes from.
1: If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter for more research at goingvc.com and consider giving us a gift by rating us and sharing the podcast with a friend wherever you're listening to this episode. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.